America wouldn't be the country it is today without its 27 amendments. These additions to the Constitution ended slavery in the U.S. and codified the right to bear arms. They also protect the right for a show like ours to exist, and one of them gave us our name, 1A, for the First Amendment. But it's been 30 years since a new one was added, and some of you think it's time for 28th. No question. The next constitutional amendment should be one that allows our votes to count. No electoral college. I can remember two votes in the last 15 years that didn't count because of the electoral college. That needs to change. The next amendment should repeal the second amendment. Gun rights are completely over the top and totally crazy in the United States versus other countries in the world, and we pay a very heavy price. We need a 28th Amendment to repeal Citizens United. The Roberts Court determined in 2010 that money was speech, and that's how we got where we are now. I would like to see a constitutional amendment that forces a constitutional reconsideration every 50 to 100 years. And it would be done by popular vote rather than by the state. Thanks for those suggestions. Getting an amendment added to the Constitution is difficult. We'll hear from someone who did that later this hour. Three-fourths of the states must ratify an amendment, but in a divided nation, could any issue gain that level of support? We're diving into that today as part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll be collaborating with public radio stations across the country to ask how our democracy is working and how it isn't. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into our conversation on constitutional amendments. Joining us now is Russ Feingold. He's the president of the American Constitution Society. That's a progressive legal organization. He was also a U.S. Democratic senator from Wisconsin from 1993 to 2011. His forthcoming book is The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Russ, it's great to have you. Jen, thank you so much. Well, also with us is Aziz Rana. He's a professor of law at Cornell University, specializing in constitutional law. Professor Rana, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for uh, for having me as well. Well, Professor Rana, let's start with the basics. What is an amendment? So uh, an amendment is additional language that's added to the text of a constitution, or you could have amendments for statutes as well. With our own constitutional system, amendments have generally done a couple different things. So one thing is they might address, you know, technical difficulties that the initial writers of the Constitution didn't foresee with the process. So we have a 12th Amendment, a 20th, a 25th that deal with things like what happens if a president dies or, you know, what happens if um, you have to change the time when offices start for either the presidency or the the House uh, and the Senate. But most of the constitutional amendments 
are responses to evolving social and political values. So these are the ones that we really think of as at the center of American life. So the 13th Amendment that ends slavery, the 14th that establishes equal protection of the law, uh, the 19th Amendment that provides women with a constitutionally protected right to vote. And so these amendments are efforts to essentially update the values, goals, commitments of the political system in response to where people are. And how is adding an amendment to the Constitution different from just changing the Constitution directly? So there are, I guess, two different ways or three different processes for changing the Constitution. So one is an amendment. And so the amendment process is you need to get two-thirds of support in both houses of Congress. And then, as you've mentioned, it goes to the the states where you need three-fourths of the states to approve it. You could also have another convention. And so there is, in fact, a convention process where if two-thirds of the states petition, then Congress can sort of establish a convention to come up with a package of amendments and maybe even rewrite the Constitution. And that would also then go to the states for that same three-fourths ratification. The most common way in American life that the Constitution has changed, though, has been through judicial interpretation. So the courts sort of shaping the language of what we have as the written text in ways that are consistent with their theories of what's constitutionally right or wrong. You also do have practices of legislative and presidential interpretation as well that have had significant impacts on constitutional meaning. One of the ways that you can think of things like the Voting Rights Act in 65, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, as kind of landmark statutes that provide sort of legislative constitutional interpretation as a way of guiding the national project. Let's go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Zach in St. Louis, Missouri. I think the framers of the Constitution did have it in mind to make it difficult to change the Constitution. But two-thirds of the state's ratifying amendment was a lot smaller at the time the Constitution was written than it is today. The framers weren't dealing with 50 states with different people of different opinions, and they definitely weren't dealing with 300 million people. Zach, thanks for that message. Now, I think Zach meant that you need three-fourths of states to ratify an amendment and two-thirds of Congress to pass it. But to his point, Russ, do you think this kind of support is realistic today? Well, it's very difficult for it to happen through this legislative route. As the professor pointed out, the two-thirds of both houses is extremely hard on almost any issue, and as you pointed out, hasn't happened since 1992. Uh, On the other hand, I want to be clear that what your question was had to do with amendments to the Constitution, and the professor correctly laid out the two ways we can have amendments. The fact that there's a third way we can have constitutional change, in other words, through judicial decisions, is not the same as an amendment. As we just found out, the the Voting Rights Act has been gutted by the Supreme Court. It wasn't protected. It wasn't an amendment to the Constitution. A woman's right to choose has now been gutted by the Supreme Court, uh, even though people thought that was settled law. So the truth is, the only way to make sure something is really solidly in place in this partisan environment is through Article 5. But the other point I want to make is that not only is this an opportunity, Jen, there's a great danger here. The professor pointed out there is a way to have a constitutional convention. This isn't some theoretical thing. It's never happened in American history, but our book, The Constitution in Jeopardy, is all about the fact that there is a very far right movement that is getting close to the point of having the 34 states needed to call a convention. And I I guarantee you, the things that would come out of that convention are not the ones the people on your show mentioned. They would be, uh, in my view, gutting the Constitution and eviscerating the role of the federal government and greatly limiting the constitutional rights of Americans. So we're trying to warn people that this is coming 
And this is a very important part of this discussion. Robert tweets, term limits on politicians and justices and gerrymandering and president by popular vote. Marina writes, one, abolish the Electoral College. Two, abolish the Senate. Three, reform the Supreme Court. Four, amendment to codify protections for women's reproductive rights, marriage equality and rights to privacy. And Eric tweets, the U.S. Constitution allows the states to legislate an official state religion and restrict religious practices that they don't like. We definitely need an amendment, putting the separation of church and state in writing. Well, let's bring another voice into the conversation. Zakia Thomas is the president of the ERA Coalition. That's an organization pushing to get the Equal Rights Amendment added to the Constitution. Zakia, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jen. Glad to be here. Zakia, what is the Equal Rights Amendment? What does it say? So the Equal Rights Amendment is, is, is very simple, as we've as uh, we've talked about a little bit before. Um, so the equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. That's basically it. So what the the, art, the amendment would do was to, would be to codify uh, against sex discrimination in the Constitution. Now, isn't gender already a, a protected class? What would the Equal Rights Amendment do beyond this? So gender isn't considered the same level of protected class as you would say, um, as you would say with uh, race or religion. And so having the Equal Rights Amendment is, is actually fundamental to making sure that we have um, those protections in the Constitution. Right now we have a patchwork of laws that help protect uh, women's rights. But as we see with the, the latest Dobbs decision, those rights are under attack and they can be taken away at the whim of Congress or at the whim of the Supreme Court. So having the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution would, would make a higher level of scrutiny for governments to say that they can take away rights based on sex and, and gender. So sex is a broader category when we look at sex discrimination than gender discrimination in general. Now, Zakia, the ERA was first proposed to Congress in 1923. It passed in 1972, but was never actually added to the Constitution. Walk us through what happened. So there was a a pushback against the Equal Rights Amendment um, for a number of reasons, mostly because people felt that their current way of life would be um, disrupted. So there was a movement to push back so that that we we would protect women is what the the, uh, sentiment was. But a lot of it really came down to economic issues. And so when we look at the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment, a uh, a number of the reasons why people were opposed to it is because they thought that it would uh, take away women's rights in the sense of um, not having to work in uh, combat situations. Um, it would provide access to abortion. It would make abortion legal across the board. Um, and it would also open the doors for gay marriage and uh, trans uh, having bathrooms that are non-gender uh, specific. So a lot of the things that the Equal Rights Amendment was, the, the opponents were advocating have actually come true and the world has not collapsed. That's one thing that I want people to think about. And as your caller mentioned, um, People think that we have the Equal Rights Amendment, and that's not true. We don't have that protection in the Constitution, and that's what we're fighting for right now. Professor Rana, there was also a strange procedural hiccup with the 14th Amendment. What happened there, and how was it finally added? So the 14th Amendment was was proposed and ratified in the context of Reconstruction right after the, the Civil War. And one of the things that sort of defined that process was that the Republicans in Congress realized that if they allowed representatives from the Confederacy, the former Confederacy, to sit in the House and the Senate in whites-only elections after systematically disenfranchising black people, 
then really all the Civil War would amount to was the formal end of slavery, but the maintenance of an overarching system of white supremacy. And so in the House and the Senate, uh, the Republican Party essentially used its Article I, Section 5 powers to refuse to sit um, Southern representatives that had been elected through whites-only elections, and then proposed the election through what amounted to a kind of a Congress that didn't necessarily have representation from the former South. And then there were other elements that were also marked this kind of unusual procedural history. Um, but that was basically the conditions under which we were able to get the 14th Amendment ratified. And the reason why that's actually significant is because today, when we think of, well, what are the parts of the Constitution that are probably most valorized? We have the First Amendment that gives the name to the show, but we also have the 14th Amendment that establishes equal protection of the law and sort of the foundation for landmark cases like Brown versus Board of Education. Now, that unusual procedural history tells us that we've had amendments that are part of the constitutional process that don't necessarily follow exactly what you might expect of how a constitutional amendment is, is ultimately going to be implemented. We have the 14th, we have the 27th Amendment that was proposed as part of the initial set of amendments that led to the Bill of Rights in 1789, but didn't end up finally getting ratified until 1992. And then we have the extended process that we're engaged with right now around the ERA. So, you know, especially given the difficulties of our amendment system, that I think this highlights the importance of, you know, giving to Congress a kind of flexibility to read the terms by which we end up incorporating new amendments. Brian emails, I don't think the Constitution needs amending. Our rights under the Constitution have largely expanded over the years. I find the argument to revise the Constitution surfaces when a decision, law, or action regulated by the Constitution goes against the beliefs or ideas of a particular constituency. The aggrieved generally need to organize more and craft a better message to grow their like-minded ranks. The aggrieved have been doing this for 233 years. Russ, how do you respond to that? Well, I think Professor Rana had it right. It would be nice if that were true, but it's pretty clear that we now have a six to three majority on the United States Supreme Court that has the view that they can dismantle uh, many constitutional rights. Things have never gone in that direction before, but that's exactly what they're doing. And they intend to move on to contraception, to gay marriage and others. And so we need fundamental reform of the way we protect people in our constitution. We're gonna need some constitutional amendments, probably to protect a woman's right to choose, uh, to make sure we protect the right to vote, uh, to make sure that we're able to uh, change the Electoral College. And if we don't change the way we have the system set up, it won't happen. So we can't just rely on the current language of the Constitution because it's inadequate. It reflects a world of white male domination, uh, racial domination from the, from the late 18th century. It needs to be updated in some way. Professor Rana, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. Brian's arguing that people who want to change the Constitution, who want to add amendments, really need to focus on crafting better messages to to grow their constituency. What do you make of that argument? So, you know, I think the real problem here is that we have an overarching system that is incredibly unrepresentative. So voting power is wildly disproportionate based on where you live in the country as a function of our state-based system of representation that ends up influencing who sits in the presidency, how the Senate is constructed, and then through those two institutions, who's on the Supreme Court. What this means is that you have a certain segment of the country 
that is not representative democra- demographically or politically of the overarching views of the country that really have massive influence to shape legislation, to direct uh, who gets elected as the president, and then to determine who's on the court. And, you know, I think the Dobbs decision really highlights this, that if we had a system of representation that functioned adequately, really, you know, an, a, an amendment that established abortion rights reproductive rights would probably already be in the Constitution, or at the very least, it would be federal legislation. If you think about how most amendment processes operate around the world, usually what you need to have an amendment passed is support in the legislative branch, uh, maybe both houses, alongside a national referendum. If there is some kind of geographical distribution requirement, like having states uh, that have to be represented, it's like Australia, where you need a majority of the states alongside a majority in a referendum. Uh, Reproductive rights and abortion rights, support for Roe, has a supermajority in the U.S., 60% plus. Through any kind of ordinary representative system of either electoral politics or constitutional amendment, it would have more than enough support to be implemented. The problem here is that there's a massive veto that's essentially provided by a minority of the population. And so even though that minority has at most a third of the national support, it's able to block legislation and then have control over a Supreme Court that then essentially imposes minority will on a majority population. Uh, Professor Rana, you've also said there's a real question about how much adding the ERA would actually shift constitutional law. What do you mean? Well, so I, I, sh- I should first say that I absolutely support the ERA and that I think there's a real problem with the text of the Constitution that there is an explicit language, you know, making clear that it's a violation of constitutional principle to have discrimination on the basis of gender. The problem, of course, is that the Constitution is interpreted by, by people and by people and institutions of power. And a large part of the difficulty that we have right now with constitutional meaning has to do with who actually sits in these institutions, including who sits on the Supreme Court. And so unless you have a change to the structure of these institutions, you're going to have the same set of folks with the capacity effectively to nullify the benefits of new language. And that's why, for me, the most important amendment to the Constitution is an amendment that would simplify the process and then pursue various kinds of structural changes to our system of representation alongside legislative packages that would reform the judiciary. Unless we do those things, it'd be very hard to to enjoy the benefits of the ERA. Zakia, very briefly, your response? Uh, So uh, I believe that regardless of uh, what the stance is, at the end of the day, we need the Equal Rights Amendment to make sure that our rights are protected. Um, if nothing else, to, to ensure that future uh, Supreme Courts, future Congress um, don't have the power to take those away. So I, I strongly affirm that we need that right in our Constitution. That's Akia Thomas, president of the ERA Coalition. That's an organization pushing to get the Equal Rights Amendment added to the Constitution. Zakia, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Podcast. 
Now let's get back to our conversation about how our Constitution gets amended. Rob emails, my amendment would provide that all international human rights agreements ratified by the United States are incorporated into the Constitution, becoming foundational United States law. This would force us to enact the four freedoms agreed by the Allies during World War II, define them clearly, provide for redress when they are violated, and balance rights with duties of citizens. The world's most powerful nation-state might actually become the beacon of freedom we pretend to be. Well, let's add a new voice to the conversation. Gregory Watson is a political activist. He was a sophomore at the University of Texas, Austin, in 1982, when he had to write a research paper about the constitutional amendment process. His research would lead to the ratification of the 27th Amendment a decade later. Gregory, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So first, what does the 27th Amendment say? It's a very simple amendment. It provides that when members of Congress want to adjust their salaries, they have to wait until the next election has first intervened before that adjustment may take effect. So essentially, voters get to decide if they deserve the raise is essentially what it comes down to. Right. So the 27th Amendment was actually written almost 200 years ago by the time you found it. How, How did you stumble on it? Very much by accident, I was researching in the spring of 1982 the Equal Rights Amendment, which uh, was supposed to expire June 30th of 1982. Congress had done something very unusual with the ERA. They granted an extension to its ratification time window. The original deadline for the state legislatures to approve ERA was March 22, 1979. Congress extended that to June 30th, 1982, but they did so in a very questionable way. It only mustered a simple majority in the U.S. House of Representatives and only mustered a simple majority in the U.S. Senate. And I wondered, is it possible for Congress to extend a deadline by mere simple majorities and then placing the resolution before the president for signature, especially when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled way back in the 1790s in the case of Hollingsworth versus Virginia, that the president of the United States is not to play any formal role whatsoever in the process by which the Constitution is amended. So I happened to stumble onto a book in the downtown Austin Public Library, and it had within it a chapter showing amendments that Congress had sent out to the state legislatures, but which not enough state legislatures had ratified. And when my eyes caught that one from 1789, that just astonished me. Number one, I knew already from my research and looking at the 1939 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Coleman versus Miller, that if an amendment has no deadline on it, then Congress is the final arbiter of whether or not enough state legislatures ratified that particular proposal in a proper fashion. So I immediately dropped the ERA because this was much more interesting. And I decided to write my paper about this 1789 
congressional compensation amendment. Now, we should say you were ultimately given a C on the research paper you wrote, and this made you decide to try to get this amendment ratified to prove your professor wrong. How much work did you have to do to get this ratified? Oh, it was 10 years of writing letters to state lawmakers all across the country, urging them to introduce the resolution. And in many cases, I enclosed with the letter a draft resolution for them to file at the state capitol. And slowly but surely, enough state legislatures approved it by the time May of 1992 rolled around that it became the 27th Amendment. Now, one thing you have to keep in mind is it was proposed in the year 1789, but with no deadline attached. It was not until the year 1917 that Congress first got into the habit of putting deadlines on constitutional amendments. Now, in in 1995, you also got the 13th Amendment ratified in Mississippi when you realized that state had never ratified the amendment that abolished slavery. What was that process like? Same thing. Sending letters. I I chose to send my letters to the African-American members of the Mississippi Senate and of the Mississippi House of Representatives and again gave them the draft resolution to file at the state capitol in Jackson, Mississippi. And a few months later, when the legislature convened in 1995, uh, it was introduced and it passed both the Mississippi Senate and the Mississippi House and thereby completed the process because Mississippi was literally the only state in the Union that had been part of the Union prior to the outbreak of the Civil War and still part of the Union after the Civil War to have never gone on record in support of it. As someone who's been so hands-on in this ratification process, how do you think about the process and our democracy more more broadly? Well, I have long advocated, and this has been entered into the congressional record as a petition to Congress, more than one petition. I have long advocated that we modernize and update the process by which we amend the Constitution. I think there should be two ways to propose, but only one way to ratify either a two-thirds vote of the two houses of Congress, or if the state legislatures pass identically worded resolutions, and when I say identically worded, I mean right down to the commas, semicolons, and periods, same capitalization, and same lowercase writing, identical. If two-thirds of the state legislatures pass a resolution for an amendment worded exactly, then that would go out to the public and the American people would go into the voting booth as they do in 49 of the 50 states when amending the state constitution and vote on it. If approved by a simple majority in at least two thirds of the geographic districts which comprise the US House of Representatives Only then 
shall it be deemed approved by the voters and thereby incorporated into the federal constitution. That's Gregory Watson. He's a political activist in Austin, Texas. He's responsible for getting the 27th Amendment ratified almost 200 years after it was introduced. Gregory, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for inviting me. There's been deepening distrust in our institutions and processes. And I'm curious to hear from both of you what you think needs to be done for the courts and the Constitution they uphold to regain legitimacy in the eyes of of many Americans. Professor Rana? Well, you know, as I've said, I, I think the the central problem is that we have institutions of representation. So this is Congress, the presidency, and the courts that don't frankly represent the public. And this produces all sorts of dysfunctions and bad incentives. And just as an example, we can think a little bit about the election period in 2020. So in the fall of 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. At the very same time, the country is facing a massive global and global health pandemic. What is it that Congress ends up doing? That McConnell in the Senate puts far more emphasis on getting a new justice appointed to the Supreme Court than ensuring that there's legislation that's broadly popularly supported that gets passed that actually addresses an ongoing social crisis. And really, this is all about the incentives of the system, which is the incentives say for long-term generational control over policymaking, it's more important who ends up sitting on the Supreme Court than whether or not they're actual legislative bills that deal with issues that people face. That, to me, is a sign of massive institutional dysfunction. And the only way that that's going to be addressed, frankly, is to provide stronger voting rights and ensure that we have a system of representation that actually effectively addresses the issues that people care about and reflects the opinions that they actually have. Russ, what about for you? What do you think once again, the professor has just got it absolutely right. We at the American Constitution Society think a number of reforms have to be achieved in order to get back the legitimacy of the court. The polls showed that the court is at rock bottom in terms of its legitimacy. What do you do? Well, Congress and the president can add justices to the Supreme Court to make up for these thefts. They stole the seats uh, that should have been appointed by President Obama and President Biden. And they biased the Supreme Court through that kind of political act And now the court is acting in a highly partisan way, and the people know it. They're just throwing out precedents that have been supported by justices of both parties. So we've got to do that. We need a constitutional amendment to limit the lifetime terms of justices. This is completely outdated. What happened with people like Justice Ginsburg is a a crime that somebody that sick feels she has to hang out of the court because of this system. And the American people would be much more trustful of one that is not a court constituted by purposely young right-wing ideologues who are going to sit on there for 30 or 40 years. And yes, we need the ethics reform. uh, And we have to not have these sort of secret decisions under the uh, shadow doctrine where they do very important decisions without even an argument. So we believe there are a series of things that need to be done that could help this court begin to restore its legitimacy because it's at the worst point it's basically ever been at in the modern era. We've been talking to Russ Feingold. He's the president of the American Constitution Society. That's a progressive legal organization. He was also a U.S. Democratic senator from Wisconsin from 1993 to 2011. His forthcoming book is The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Also with us, Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Cornell University, specializing in constitutional law. 
This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll be collaborating with public radio stations across the country to ask how our democracy is working and how it isn't. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.